Hello, everyone, and welcome back to In Our 1990s, the podcast where your two hosts are ranking the alternative albums of the 90s as objectively as human as is humanly possible. I'm your host, Natalie, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Hadrian. How are you doing this week, Hadrian? Uh, my hands hurt because I cut up a butternut squash right before we started recording, and I found out butternut squash pulp makes my hands itch. Oh, so it's like... Uh... The thing I can never remember the name of that's an Otonomiyaki. Uh, uh, Nagaimo. Nagaimo, yes. Not, not not quite as looks like semen once grated. And if you don't know that, look up uh, Grated Nagaimo. And it's, a, it's a real horror show. It, I love taking pictures of it when I'm making Okonomiyaki. And people are just like, what the fuck is that? I'm like, mmm, delicious. But it's like, I, I, I meant more in the way that it makes your hands itch. Yeah, and, the, and so it's, it's I don't know if there's something in butternut squash or if my hands are just dry because of it, but it, it is very, like, sensitive. Nagaimo, uh, a majority of people who touch it, the outer, the outer flesh, is, is reactive and will, like, cause itching and, in serious cases, chemical burns. And that's been your lesson on Nagaimo and Butternut Squash to start this episode. Mm-hmm. But let's uh, get into our albums for this week. And we're going to start off with one from 1997, uh, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone by Harvey Danger. And uh, this one is all yours, Adrian. Yeah, so this is Harvey Danger's first studio album and most remembered because of Flagpole Sitta. You've heard this song. Everyone in the 90s heard this song. Everyone in the 90s likes this song, whether they really want to admit admit it or not, because that song is great. It has this great sense of place. It is a summery, late 90s, just everything's not okay kind of anthem. And that is a lot of how this this album is. It's like, it's, it's a lot of, nothing's quite okay. And I can most directly relate this to like the Caulfield album, having a very like, not necessarily nihilism, but it was definitely just like, things are a little bit shit vibe going through it. And the different main difference is that Harvey Danger is not constantly bagging on women. Um, I'm never going to let the consoles <laughs> down on that one. It's, it's not that bad. It's bad. Uh, but overall, I, I liken this to what the Decemberists might have sounded like if they hadn't been... V- as you know c motivated because there's a lot of there's a similarity in the there's the singers voices and their friends they perform together um but overall it's like the, the harvey danger kind of came out of nowhere and didn't hasn't really done a whole lot outside of this album they, they obviously have other albums but nothing ever blew up quite the same way that flagpole said it did i mean let's be honest they're one hit wonders i i wouldn't say that i mean the, the, if you were going to talk about it in the terms of charting yes um, well, I mean, yeah, that's that's what that means. They had, they had one hit and then... But a lot of one-hit wonders never produce anything else. And they have at least three other albums. Yeah. And they're, they're second. So the the singles were Flagpole Soda and then Private Helicopter, which that's a weird one to, to release as a single. It's it's fine, but it doesn't have the same oomph behind it that Flagpole Soda has. And I, th- I would personally have probably released... Uh, Carlotta Valdez, yeah, yeah, or Terminal Annex. Terminal Annex is not as you know poppy, but it is. Yeah, Carlotta Valdez would definitely have been my second single if I were them. But yeah, but Private Helicopter is more poppy. Carlotta Valdez is more of a punk song. But yes, I 
I'm glad that the album starts with that because like there's it's a, a good there's, it's a good opener. Yeah, there's a real temptation that you would just lead with Flagpole Sitta and just be like, yeah, this is what Harvey Danger's about. But Carlotta Valdez like just hits in a nice way, and not every album opens with a song that is as definitive as it should be. But I think this was a good option because it kind of that plus Flagpole Sitta gives you a, a a view of their their focus on music. So it is this like popish punk combination that i think one of the one of the early like bits of praise for this album was that like uh the album has been described by fuse as a definitive indie power pop punk record at the time and place where grunge reigned supreme and i think in 97 grunge grunge was no longer reigning supreme no definitely not but i mean i think that just means they're from seattle yeah (laughs) and they're from that whole scene and like in Harvey Danger would go on to be very influential, I think, in other bands' sound because Flagpole sort of really did just hit the same way, kind of like Sex and Candy did. It was just like everywhere. That song was just unescapable or inescapable. Uh, but I don't think they ever really had much ambition to like capitalize on that. I think there was just like some comfort in making music, and I think that kind of follows through with how this album sounds. Yeah. Um... So this album had an, kind of an interesting start. It was one of those where like, they were sending out a demo tape to uh, bigger labels, and then someone at one of the bigger labels heard it and was like, well, the my label's not interested, but I also have my own like little label, and like I want to release this. And, and in fact, this is so good, I want to personally like pay for you to make a full length album to, to release this album cost like three thousand three thousand dollars yeah that has to have bad. been a massive return on investment um it no it, it does not sound like a, an album that cost three thousand dollars i mean it sounds polished and and part of why back in 1997 when the song came out i kind of refused to give it the time of day was like oh great this is like major label grunge fuck them you know i'm not interested and then you know as i matured i I went back to it and was like oh that song's a a banger like (laughs) Mm -hmm. well deserved i mean it it was this album just is nicely done and has no real baggage it proved itself on its own like in like the fact that it was recorded for three thousand dollars and then they were like oh we need to put out another version of this so we need to like it just continuously made more money and people were taking notice of it. And that makes it this nice little anomaly in the 90s. It's like it's it's unpretentious in its success. Yeah. And in a way, their career is like. It mirrors primitive radio gods if primitive radio gods had been good, <laughs> um, like where they were just constantly being failed by their label mm-hmm. and, and just nothing went their way. Like they have this. I mean, Flagpole Soda wasn't like a massive hit in terms of like the top 40, like it peaked at 38, but it was like it hit number three on the modern rock chart. So it was a it was was a hit for sure. Um, Yeah. And it was it was a song that whether no matter where it charted, you heard it constantly. Mm. Um, And like despite that, it just kind of they never got much support to follow it up. And they got to make another album, but then it got delayed and delayed. I mean, it delayed to the point they were trying to like get it released on a different label. And every band they wanted to tour with, the label was like, nope. Like they almost got to open for the Pretenders, and that fell through. <laughs> like just it, nothing. 
went their way and i think that that did like sabotage them to some extent i also think that listening to like the rest of this album and I, i'll admit up front i haven't listened to any of their other stuff except for this album um so i don't know like where they went but it also like outside of flagpole Seta and carlotta valdez in private helicopter like this is a pretty like despite being from seattle this is like a real early emo midwestern indie rock album mm-hmm. <laughs> like this sounds a lot like the promise ring to me yeah and, and that's why i say they're more influential than people give them credit for and really their later stuff sounds almost exactly like this like it there's a little bit more of that just like flair that's in flagpole sort of woven throughout the rest of their stuff which is not as fi- nicely meshed in this album but it's still there there's still some cohesion and i they I don't think any of their songs are bad. I don't think any, like, I know you have a, a <laughs> I have one, let me get it out of the way. Jack the Jack the Lion fucking sucks. That song's egregious. It shouldn't have been on the album. It's just god-awful. Bad vocal performance. Bad songwriting. Bad choice of guitar effects. Like, everything about that song it's is a, it's, shit. It's a mid-show song. It's like where you everyone's like, I'm gonna go to the bathroom while uh, See, the Jack problem the is there are several mid-show songs on here and they're all better than that one. Like, <laughs> Problems and Bigger Ones, I think, is actually the best song on the album, but it's also long and ponderous and slow. Yeah, it's it's a good 11 seconds longer than Jack the Lion. Yeah, and Wrecking Ball is long and slow, and, and the last song, Radio Silence, is not long but also slow and ponderous it's like this album is very different from it it kicks off with these two just absolute like knock out of the park singles even though one didn't get released as a single and then like by the end of the album it's like mostly like you know early death tab for cutie (laughs) like (laughs) kind of kind of down tempo and like it's it's very different which i think also hurt them probably is that like it's one of those albums where if you bought it for flagpole said you don't really get much else that sounds like that yeah and then that that song definitely stands out and if you were trying to capitalize on the success of that song it's very difficult to do just because the the, the breadth of their catalog just doesn't meet that that energy which i don't think is bad you can have a song because like i don't think any other song by marcy playground sounds like sex and candy like that that very dirty sound to that song doesn't really follow through in any of their other work and the you could absolutely see this in the soundtrack of a rebellious high school film sound quality of flagpole sitta like doesn't match anything else yeah um i mean like usually on albums where it's like there's the there's the hit single and then nothing else on the album sounds like that it means the rest of the album sucks but that's like like i think there are like i i'm i want to phrase this carefully like because flagpole said is is great but it's a very different kind of great and like problems and bigger ones is like a really mature like better written song than mm-hmm. than flagpoles. I mean, I think it's a better song, even if it's not necessary because it's like slow and long. I'm not necessarily gonna listen to it more, but I, I think it is like a better accomplishment. Yeah, and this album showcases that they did have range and that they would do different things, even though everything kind of falls into a, a similar vein. Where like 
flagpole sort of stands a little higher than the rest, like Carlotta Valdez and Problems of Bigger Ones have a through line in how they're composed. It's just it, the way the, the music functions is different. And I think that's good. I mean, being able to notice an artist's tendencies is not bad at all. And in fact, I think makes a lot of music better. Like that's when we th- when we talk about classical music, and for instance, we can define, uh, or even if you don't know much about composers, you can you can tell Bach from Brahms, from for a min- in many for many reasons. But you also know by the way things are composed and, and constructed. And I think that's why I like Harvey Danger and I like their later stuff is that there is like that's a Harvey Danger song, because it just has a a brightness or a, a completeness that they're consistent about. Yeah, um, I mean, I will definitely listen to their other stuff, even though none of the rest of it will be ranked on the show because it came out two thousand yeah. and later. But like, I'm I'm going to listen to it because I I like this. It's a style of music that I like. Um, and you know, I'm a fan of of the like midwestern indie rock late '90s stuff. So, um, especially you know, I like the Promise Ring a lot. So like saying that this sounds a lot like the promise ring is is a compliment from me and maybe i'm wrong it's been a bit since i've listened to all that stuff but like i remember having their albums on my like ipod shuffle and there would be days where i would just be like i'm gonna listen to harvey danger today and just shuffle through everything actually i had a harvey danger and marcy playground playlist that i would play through uh because like then that's my that's probably why i'm talking about marcy playground in this conversation is that i just think that those two bands dominate a post-grunge sound that we need to give more credit because it, they tend to get lost in a sea of just like '90s indie rock. Even though, like, I think they both had a a large influence on what the 2000s sounded like. Yeah, I, I don't. I I think that's way overstating Marcy Playground's influence. It, I mean, it's probably overstating Harvey Danger's influence too. But like, because a lot of that stuff was already going on by '97 when this came out. Um, but it is like it like this and sex and candy are definitely things when i think about you know more mainstream but still alternative rock from the late 90s those are definitely two of the like those are that's the sound i think about even though i wouldn't say it's the same sound it's there are enough similarities that that it like flagpole soda and sex and candy are definitely like like they would be very high on the list if you were like name late nineties alternative rock songs. That, yeah. Like those are the two those are two of the first ones I'd think of. Like that and then the like just like, a girl it would be in there or, you know, anything by no doubt off that album. And that that was like I don't want the world to see me because I don't think that they'd understand. I don't I don't know that one. Yeah. Anyone who does know that's like I don't want the world <laughs> to see me. Like that. Because <laughs> see, I mean, I was like way out of rock music at this point in my life. I was, I had moved on. And I lived on in Tulsa, to... Oklahoma, which has a massive rock, like alternative rock concert every year. Yeah. And, and also I think you mentioned before, like you're like riding around in the car with your dad and he listened to like the local, like modern rock station. Mm-hmm. So you would have heard this stuff. But yeah, the Tulsa climate for this kind of music is like, it's like, the 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 edge would always put on this massive like music festival every year that doesn't i don't think they do it as much now or or at all to this year but it was very big and it would be just like all of these crazy bands that in the middle of tulsa oklahoma like that was a weird place for all of these like big acts like david bowie was in that that show one year and that was crazy (laughs) 
But yeah, that's the weird sound of what Tulsa is. It's like the venue's just big enough that someone would be like, oh, that's fine, I'll go to Tulsa. And that's what the Midwest is. I want to say that Wooly Muffler is also a good song. Oh, yeah. I like I... that one. That, that one has a, probably just because it's called Wooly Muffler, it, it, that, but that song feels like a real Weezer tribute to me. <laughs> like Wooly Muffler is kind of like Sweater. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. That song just there's some real Weezer influence on this album to me. It's it's sure. not like super super strong. And but I would, it's I, would there. Lump, I would lump Weezer in that same collection of bands that just like personify a, a sound of the '90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this band's real more. nerdy too. Like, oh yes. Like they were, they started off like they got together because uh, two of them worked at a college newspaper together. And they did the same thing that my band did, which is they recruited two more members and uh, neither of whom had ever had any interest in performing music before. Um, their drummer had never played drums before, <laughs> which is, that's what my band did. We had a me and the drummer who already could play, and then we got our, we made our friends learn to play instruments because every time we would talk to someone who could already play, we thought they were an asshole. <laughs> and didn't want to have them in our band and so we finally just told two of our friends you're gonna learn to play guitar and you're gonna learn to play bass and you're gonna be in our band and, and they did it well one of them learned how to play guitar the other never really got very good on bass no, he, he was he was not a born musician and the other one was i mean uh, you can just slap a bass right and I mean, <laughs> he wanted to but that's it did not work out i know you don't like slap bass not not the biggest fan. It's it's fine. It has its uses. I just hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's fair. Um, but yeah, like so so definitely you can see where like these guys would have been into Weezer, and then like after the band broke up, they kind of went on to go back to those careers. Like uh, Sean Nelson, I believe the the singer mm -hmm. is still in journalism, <laughs> or or he's a writer. I, I don't know exactly which. Yeah, and um, like, and I always forget the. the and one of the guys started like a IT company, so like, yeah, nerds, good old nerds, fucking nerds. Yeah, though, and the uh, the lead singer, uh, the I only I only know that like uh, he performs with the Decemberists occasionally because I just was like, their voices are so similar. Mm -hmm. I can see this this being a thing. And yes, they're friends and they perform together. And they're like. That's a very that's a very good use of, of someone who is your vocal doppelganger. Yeah, so if like Colin Malloy from the Decemberists, you know, fell ill, like Sean Nelson could definitely <laughs> step in and, and like it wouldn't be too jarring. No, and that's and I think that's probably why they they know each other. I mean, I don't know the, the full depth of their relationship, but like when I found that out, I was like, that makes sense. I would I would want to be friends with someone who sounds so much like seems so much like me. <laughs> It's the opposite of uh, of Morrissey and the Tonight the Streets Are Ours guy. Oh, yeah. Mm. Richard Hawley. Yep. I'm doing great at remembering people's well, names today. The problem with Richard Hawley is that he auditioned to play in Morrissey's backup band and then decided he was going to sing, and Morrissey had him escorted from the audition. <laughs> <laughs> because Richard Hawley has a dynamite fucking voice. And being able to play a guitar and have a dynamite fucking voice made Morrissey feel inadequate. And I'm not gonna... 
you don't sue me, Morrissey. That's just my take on that whole scenario. Well, so I don't have much else to say about this one. No, um, I, I think it's a. It's a, it's I, a I don't fine... think we'll have a fight about ranking it, but I'm curious to see where you think it goes versus where I think it goes. Uh, so. I think it's probably like a number eleven. Okay, yeah, that's actually lower than I thought you were going to go with it. I mean, um, I think it's great. I don't know. I, I would. I would like to fight to put it higher but like <laughs> well so i was like i was expecting you to go like mid top 10 um so i was gonna argue like for number 10 number 10 um because i don't think it's as good as i actually don't think it's as good as anxiety but that's also you know that's me mm-hmm. i don't know how i don't know how you feel on that one I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't mind it at number eleven. I don't think that's too low. Um, I mean, I think that in that range is like if you're comfortable at ten, I'm good with ten. But I'm I will I'm totally fine to accept eleven. Because I'd, I'd rather have it at eleven because I I want to keep fate in the top 10 <laughs> for now. It won't it won't last, but it. But I, they're on fairly equal footing when it comes to like a nice, memorable, or quality experience from the nineties. Like it's a the and. I personally think like this album is better than that, and I would like to put it higher on the list. But we probably should listen to it before we listen to Veruca Salt because I would put it where Veruca Salt is. It, it, I think it's probably better than that album. I, I see. I still think that we got it wrong with that and Morning Glory because there's so much stuff that I'm like, well, it's not as good as Morning Glory, but it's better than that Veruca Salt album. <laughs> And this is another one of those where I don't think it's as good as Morning Glory, but better than Veruca Salt. Um, so, yeah, I would feel best with it going at number 11. I don't think that's too high. I, I also think that, like, being one-hit wonders, like, should count against it a little bit. Because even if it wasn't entirely their fault, it, like... I also just don't think they, they cared much. Like, I think because they could all go do, you know, different things and had other interests. Music wasn't, like, the primary focus. Yeah. They just were like, no, oh, that album did pretty well. So. There was a little bit, like... So, if you watch um, Todd in the Shadows on YouTube, he did a, a one of his one-hit Wonderland videos about Flagpole Seta. And so he showed some, you know, he talked about them being big nerds who didn't really seem to care if they were rock stars and didn't seem like the rock star type and showed some like footage of them in interviews. And they are just like horribly awkward. (laughs) And I mean, just like, like the bare naked ladies, if they were like not annoying, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just like the most like dorky looking motherfuckers you've ever seen and that's fine i i that i resonate with that like i i know exactly how it feels to just be a nerd <laughs> in a situation where you probably shouldn't be a nerd to be successful yeah but they're like they might be giants are big nerds but they also like they're a little more outgoing they they have a they have stage presence yes <laughs> they're nerds who can put on a good show whereas like these guys are are not these guys are <laughs> leave the IT lab and their button their short sleeve button downs and be like, yep, we're here to do a show. Yeah, which is kind of a grunge thing, you know, you just come as you are. No pun and actually no, I totally intend it. Yeah, um, but, 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 but but like you you know, the whole point was to look like you don't want to be there and, and these guys actually looked like they didn't want to be there. <laughs> but we're a bit more put together than and most Yeah, so acts. like his his conclusion and, and I think he was Todd Todd's conclusion and I think he was right was like these guys didn't really 
care. They like they did it because they were good at it, but also like were kind of probably happier not having to deal with all the shit that goes around writing songs. And I think they contributed some 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 nice memorable music. Like I I think about Carlotta Valdez a lot. Yeah, that's one of my favorite songs, and so. I mean, for sure, like, this is a very good album. Like, I mean, obviously, it, it's, you know, going near the top ten. Um, so, like, it's it's not a... It's it's not forgettable. And and I'm about to say something that, that I would punch someone for saying about a certain presidential candidate on Twitter, but, like, it's not forgettable if you listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's just that not enough people listen to it beyond the single that's not actually all that representative of the album so. yeah and and for me i was just listening to anything i could get a hold of and things that sounded nice i just put together in weird mishmashes i my early my early relationship with music was way different than the radio and i think i'm better off for it and i'd like i'm glad that harvey danger exists enough that i have some some songs that i really enjoy and i think that would be like the whole response would be, that's cool. Or awkwardly go, nice. And then the conversation ends. <laughs> yeah, so listen to this album if you haven't. If all you've ever heard is Flagpole Sitta, like, listen to the whole thing. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Really, I do, I do too. It's, it's, it's good stuff, and especially if you like that kind of, you know, again, Midwestern indie rock from the 90s. Like, you're probably <laughs> going to enjoy this, so. I listened to more than that. I want you to let you know. <laughs> well, I, we both listened to more than that. I'm just saying this is very much in that wheelhouse. Okay, so uh, we'll put this one on the list and then take a break and we'll be back to discuss uh, Mila Jovovich. We are back with our second album of the night, continuing what seems like it's going to be a pretty low-key show. Um, we're going to be talking about an album from 1994 called The Divine Comedy, and the artist is listed as Mila, but it is actually Mila Jovovich, um, who you most likely know as the woman from the Resident Evil movies and The Fifth Element and various other films. Um, how is she not in a Marvel movie? Because uh, I think she's owned by Capcom. She'd have been so much better as Black Widow than Scarlett oh, Johansson. Oh, hell yeah. Or, or literally anybody, in, except for Captain Marvel. But like she could have played almost anyone in all of also, them. Also, I mean, she's actually Ukrainian, even if she you know, moved when she was like five. Still, like she's... She has an accent that it's, it's, it's very subtle now, but like early on in her career, it was definitely like she would say words. You'd be like, you just said a word. And I don't think that word's sounds the way you just made it sound early on the resident evil movies that was definitely clear <laughs> yeah i was actually surprised that she has been in america for so long because i I definitely thought she had like a and really i think her like, her spouse kind of like dictates her career and that's probably yeah. why she hasn't been in a marvel film yeah well i don't know i mean i would if, if I were married to someone and dictating their career, I'd be trying to get them into a Marvel movie. I don't think he has that kind of pull. Um, but anyway, so, like, 
if you only casually know her from acting, you probably don't realize that she had a music career. Um, she made an album. She didn't have a music career. Well, she made an album, and then she was on some other people's albums, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and she still actually, like, occasionally does songs for movies she's in. She just, you know, is mostly a soundtrack artist at this point when she does it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like you kind of have to be a Mila super, super fan to know about this album. Um, or like the Divine Comedy and really get really mad when this comes up in your shuffle. <laughs> well, you shouldn't get mad because this album's pretty good. Um so she wrote these the songs on this album when she was 15, which is really impressive when you look at the stuff in that light and, and like, you know, wrote the lyrics and the music. Um, probably, I, I doubt she did the arrangements because the arrangements are, are pretty specific mm-hmm. um, and not what I would think any 15-year-old would be listening to. Uh, yeah. Um, so... Like she was, she had a record deal as early as 1988 and then just didn't manage to get anything released until 94. It sounds like she was kind of particular about it in a way that probably put off the label. Mm. Um, and so this was interesting to me is that in 1990, four years before this came out, she said that her album was going to be. Quote, a mix between Kate Bush, Sinead O'Connor, This Mortal Coil, and the Tocto Twins, unquote. <laughs> uh, which is like, you can know the Tocto Twins. If you know This Mortal Coil, you're a 4AD super fan. So, <laughs> like, good on you, Mila, for knowing who the fuck that was in, in 1990. Um, and, and, like, what actually came out in 94 is, I think we can agree, extremely Kate Bush. Yeah, in the vocal style, especially. I don't get any Cocteau Twins out of this. No, it, it's it's more Inya, honestly, than the Cocteau Twins. Which is fair because at that time, that was the period in which like Lemon and McKenna and Inya were like taking the fuck off. So if you're releasing an album that you could push into that realm, you might as well push it into that realm. Yeah. So this band, um, or this band, uh, this album is if you've never heard it it's very it's like a mix of like new agey Inya type stuff um Kate Bush more in terms of melodies and vocals and then like a lot of like folk like ethnic folk instrumentation like Ukrainian I don't want to say totally Ukrainian because it's kind of that mishmash you get in new age music of like there's some Indian percussion in there and some like a Turkish lute and like mandolins, but it's it's an overall very like Eurocentric vibe to it in the way that like New Age music is all sort of fakey Celtic. Um, and like I wouldn't really say that this is like Celtic music, but it's Celtic in the sense that like Square Enix RPG soundtracks from the mid 90s are. <laughs> Like a lot of this stuff would make for good town themes in Final Fantasy games. Oh, is yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I mean between like '94 to like '98, like those four years, like Riverdance was a whole thing. People like Renaissance fairs blew up in a big way. It was just like a whole aesthetic. It was like as that like narrow window in which like there was a uh, swing dance revival where people were also like getting super into crystals and women who sang like Mila and uh, 
Yeah, the song you did it all before, I just want to point out, is specifically such a RPG town theme. <laughs> yes. It's such a PlayStation RPG town theme. Like which again, you know, I'm I'm not too ashamed to admit that like I really like a lot of like I, I love the fucking Chrono Cross soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yasunori Mitsuda, he really does it for me. Um, so like I I do have a soft spot for stuff that sounds like this as long as it doesn't get too you know up its own ass Wiccan, which I, this doesn't. No, the the lyrics are much more Kate Bush than than like I I don't even know who it would, who you would compare it to because I don't know. I don't listen to Wiccan music. <laughs> <laughs> Nor I. Uh, there was one thing that keeps coming back to me, and we talked about this some last night, is that there's a a real Brian Ferry like way that she phrases things in these songs, and it, it it's not they don't sound similar at all, but it's it's the way that Ferry elongates words. And the, the way that he follows through notes uh, is very similar to what she's doing. And she's, I know she's trying to do more of a Kate Bush thing with it, but she is more effectively mimicking Brian Ferry's style than Kate Bush. Yeah, I mean, I would have to take your word for it because, like, we've we've talked about my reactions to Roxy music. I, I think it's, like, just a dead-on impression of Kate Bush. I mean... Dead on in the sense that it's not as good as Kate Bush. It's not as trilly. She and can't wail like Kate Bush. Yeah, so like Kate Bush employs a lot of a lot of trilling sounds and how, yeah. how she sings, and Milik is approaching it, which is where the Brian Ferry comparison comes in because he also tries to do that, and then it doesn't come out quite right. And with me, Mila, Mia, uh, Milia, uh, with this album, <laughs> my, <laughs> I just can't say L's today. It it functions here, and even though it's not quite a Kate Bush impression, it's very clearly coming along that lines. But I'm hearing other attempts around that are making it makes me think of of Roxy music, and I will eventually stop comparing things to Roxy music. He lied. Yeah. So, um, like, there is a lot of so the worst stuff on this album is just borderline straight up adult contemporary it, it's still pretty Inya mm-hmm. even at its even at its worst moment the worst moments are the ones that sound the most like Inya and I don't say that as like Inya sucks because she's fine she's whatever um she's background coffee shop I, music. I like Econoco flow come on now Orinoco flow Orinoco whatever <laughs> her Escoflone's flow <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know what Escoflone's is that's like uh Oh, that, that was so. Anime, there's, uh, there's, uh, an, there's anime nasal spray. Yes, because my parents were watching Escaflone, and then I was using Flones, so I just said Escaflones <laughs> at that point, and that has always been in my brain that way. <laughs> my my dad sent me to my room. Yeah. Um. It, God, is it Yoko Shimomura who does the Escaflone soundtrack? Because this sounds like that too. Yes, that, that's also why that was in my in my brain. Yeah. Hold on, I have to look that up because Yoko Kano, not not Yoko Shimomura. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this sounds like uh, this does sound like Estaflone, the the uh, the stuff that Yoko Kano did for that that series yeah. slash movie. Um, which has some really good music in it. 
I've never watched much of the anime, but and the music's the best part. I felt that that was boring as shit, which is why that's I was the case on it. of a lot of anime from that period mm-hmm. that that has that folky proto Joanna Newsom lane <laughs> kind of folk music for the soundtracks. So. Yeah, and I think that's what, so. Yeah, sorry to bring you all in the back door of my joke, my childhood joke, but. <laughs> Uh, well, at any rate, we're way off track from from Mila, um, but uh, yeah. So, like, my favorite song on the album is probably um, "The Gentleman Who Fell." Yes, that one's very upbeat, and and like you can you know dance around a fire pit to it if you wanted to, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, I think that so "Bang Your Head" is also like really good. Yes. It's a little bit darker and has a little bit of like a almost like a swampier feel to it. The, that one's way more Tori Amos than Kate Bush. I was getting a lot of Tori Amos. Yeah, there, and... there is. There, I couldn't remember when Under the Pink came out um, because I didn't think it was. Or not Under the Pink, uh, Little Earthquakes, her first album. Um, it, it was before this. I, d- I don't know if it was enough before this that. It 92. W- yeah, so maybe that filtered in a little bit, but if these songs were written from the time she was a teenager, I don't know how much. They, there's way more Kate Bush here, but there's yeah. Tori Amos is definitely affecting. I think, and I think in the way this was arranged, there's a lot of Tori Amos in that, and that's probably not her doing as much as the person who arranged it. Yeah, so Charlie is another song on here that I think is good, and it's like a more. Uh, that one goes way more over to the purely like Tori Amos, Kate Bush woman singer songwriter from the early nineties. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously I know Kate Bush was around like since the seventies, but um, post Kate Bush woman singer songwriter, almost Lilith Fair kind of stuff um, that I feel like if she had continued making music instead of going off to become, you know, a wildly successful actress that like, that's probably more the direction she would have gone in. Oh yeah. Ultimately. I, I don't think the like lutes and, and like hand drums would have really like sustained her for very long but like imagine if she had been like if she'd tied it into like a fashion brand and we would all like all the all the witches today would just be wearing stimulus stuff oh god oh just a bunch of stevie nixes running around even more than we already have um she could wear a nice sequined headband you know (laughs) well i mentioned last week (laughs) that i saw her on conan o'brien when this came out, it was actually I, the first time I ever heard her. I hadn't heard the album yet, I, which I really I didn't hear the full album until listening to it for this. Um, but I had heard a couple of songs in Hastings because um, they had it on a listening station where I listened to a little bit of the first song and said, this sucks and walked off. And that song is not great. No, it doesn't start. It doesn't start well. Um, we usually talk. So this is an album where like the first song you go, mm. I'm good. And that was yeah. kind of what happened with me with this. I was like, oh, I don't want none of that. Yeah, it's a bad opener. Um, it's it's not as bad as I remembered it being. But anyway, so she was on Conan O'Brien and where she performed wearing, like, if I remember correctly, a hippie skirt, like the kind of, you know, I don't know if it was tie dyed or what, but, you know, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. The hippie skirts that you buy at the metaphysical shop 
and like a white baby doll t-shirt that was very tight with no bra and did I mention the shirt was basically see-through and as a pubescent young person I kept a videotape of that around for longer than I should admit to <laughs> that's fine She's very- I couldn't believe that it got aired on TV to be perfectly honest because you could just straight up see her nipples oh no she probably had a jacket on she's she's prone to just like fucking with people as in her fashion career that's always been something she's she did so she would like probably had a different outfit and the moment she went out she <laughs> took the jacket off and it was like just titties and you're like uh, yeah and Whoa. I don't mean that you could like that they were poking out even though they were I mean you could see the color of her nipples <laughs> like she might as well have been topless Anyway, that that was that was the first impression that Mila made on me. She's um, very striking. She's a very striking woman. Not not really my taste these days, but but you know, when you're however old I was in 1994, 14-ish, you know, you'll you'll take what you can get. <laughs> Especially when there was no real internet to speak of. It's true. Um so I don't I doubt you have much more to say about this. I don't have a ton to say about it. Like, I, I like it. I think it just barely deserves to be on this show, honestly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it's you're the very, one who put it here. Yeah, well, no, and and I stand by that for the stuff that's a little more organic, uh, like more acoustic instruments and less, like, Inya strings. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, there's some of the, the more adult contemporary stuff and the more Inya stuff is just, like... It's not something that if the whole album sounded like that, I would I would want to rank it. Um, but because of the stuff like Gentleman Who Fell, um, and because it's so influenced by Kate Bush, I think it should be should excuse me should be ranked. Yeah. And as for the ranking, I think that I would probably put this. This is my my swinging for the fences on this one, and you can do as you will after that i would put it at number 20 uh, which would put it between blow eyelash wish and carbon sand i think that's fine i think that it's i I think the songwriting between carbon sand and and this is like really close i think this feels a little fresher and this is definitely an album that someone who really likes the mission would probably be into i mean yeah like it's it's it Having it right there with Carved in Sand and The Fatherless and the Widow, it, it's kind of like a nice range of, like, hippie start music. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like, it's it's not as straight-up poppy as as Fatherless and the Widow, and it's not as goth as Carved in Sand, but it's... A goth would listen to this, and a hippie would listen to that Mission album. Like yes, exactly. I mean, we talked about it, that the that Mission album is hippie goth, and, and this is, like... Smokes yeah. weed outside the metaphysical shop. Like you're probably not super into both this and Sisters of Mercy, but like Mm-mm. it's there. Are, there's a crossover in like some goths definitely like would have listened to this album. Are you a fey weirdo? You probably like <laughs> both these things. Yeah, and like I really wish that she would have done more, more like done an actual follow up to this. Like she has notably, she was in a band called Plastic Has Memory that. I don't think they ever actually recorded anything. They might have recorded like one song. They didn't do an album. And then she guests on, tell me if I'm mispronouncing this, uh, Pussifer, the, the like Maynard James Keenan 
side project. That's that's a very her thing to do. Yeah, and she's also guested on Crystal Method albums, which make also makes sense. And and she, I'm deeply disappointed in this. Guested on an album by Deepak Chopra. Which makes sense, given the style of music that would be, but fuck Deepak Chopra so hard. That guy's such a piece of shit. I, I have no response to that. I, I don't, he sucks. I, I, I don't, honestly, I don't know enough about Deepak Chopra to... He's just one of those guys who is like, like, quantum physics means you can do magic. Oh yeah, I see why you dislike that. Yeah. He's, he's very much a, like, if you get cancer and die, it's because you wanted it. Because you manifest the things that you want in your life. And so if you get sick, it's all your fault. That's sounding a little bit too much like prosperity gospel. Yeah, it's very, it's new age prosperity gospel. Um, I don't think he really talks about prosperity. He he talks because that's not what new age hippies are into. They're into, you know, I'm so pure and I will <laughs> never get sick and die. And if I ever get a chance to work it into this show, I will talk about the time I applied for a job at a natural food store. And while I was sitting waiting to to be interviewed, I overheard a guy at another table telling his friend how how he he will never die because he's he's overcome his desire for death that all people have, and so he'll live forever. You won't, but he will. And then that guy got hit by a bus. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, that's Deepak Chopra, who who Mila collaborated with. So fuck that shit, whatever it is. I haven't heard it. I I can't believe Deepak Chopra made an album, but he has a video game. He can just it's a eat Wii game. All my ass. Well, yeah, that makes sense that it would be a Wii game. Yeah, it's um, not a system called the Woo. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's yeah, he is definitely a guy that James Randi has gone after before. But that I knew. I just didn't. Yeah. I, it was one of those things I didn't fuck with. I was like, oh, James Randi said something. I'm I'm good. I don't take Randi as just pure gospel, but if he takes No, but he does somebody, good work like, as far as as far as, you know, debunking that bullshit, even though like that's out of fashion these days. I, so alright, so we're gonna put this at number twenty. I'm good with that. I'm good with that too. Um so another week with Oh wait, no, last week we I've totally lost track. What did we do last week? Uh, Chibamato. Yeah, yeah, Chibamato and 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 Dandy's Roll Okay. Yes, yes. So yeah, so the whole point of that digression was that we don't have any changes to the top ten this week. Still gonna read it out. Uh, number ten, Anxiety by Fei Wong. Number nine, What's the Story? Morning Glory by Oasis. Number eight, Eight Arms to Hold You by Veruca Salt. Number seven, Ten by Pearl Jam. Uh, number six, Without You, I'm Nothing by Placebo. Number five, Kill Uncle by Morrissey. Number four, Superstition by Susie and the Banshees. Number three, The Philosophy of Momus by Momus. Number two, Liberation by The Divine Comedy. And at number one, Get Lost by The Magnetic Fields. If you want to take a look at our entire rankings, which are up to 28 now, um, you can go to bit.ly slash in our 1990s, bit.ly slash nr1990s you can also search spotify for nr1990s to listen to all the podcast episodes and our official playlist to which we will be adding two more albums mm -hmm. and what is the album that you are adding hadrian well it's not the gary newman album i wanted to do because understandably gary hates his 90s catalog uh but it's going to be exile by gary newman 
Not the Gary Newman you want, but the Gary Newman you deserve. Well, I mean, this is still... I like this album a whole lot because it's like just Dominion Day and the Angel Wars. This is hardcore, I'm gonna murder God level Gary <laughs> Newman. And it is... <laughs> so maybe he can take down Deepak Chopra while he's at it. Yeah. This was this is the album that probably is why I'm a Satanist, honestly. Like, this is like... Yeah, it's... All right, yeah. so I'm finally doing the Melt Banana album I've had in my pocket for a few weeks now. Uh, Speech Sweet Creek by Melt Banana, which I believe is from 1994 off the top of my head. I think it's their first album. I'll know for sure by next week. should probably just type Melt Banana because I can't remember that yep. title. Speech Sweet Creek, which are probably the lyrics to most of the songs too, given their love of having onomatopoeia as lyrics. Oh no, you said the word, and now that song's gonna be stuck in my head. So, on the most recent Sparks album, there's a song called Onomatopoeia. <laughs> and it's well, this will good. sound nothing like Sparks. No, but that's a very good album. You should listen to it. It's finally officially out. Even though my vinyl is never going to arrive. Oh, Melt Banana is also very good, so listen to Speech Sweet Creek for next week. And also Exile by Gary Newman. Yes. All right. Well, it's uh, time to cook that butternut squash that you were fighting with earlier. So let's get out of here and go make dinner and be happy.